Hello, everyone, and welcome to our show, Let's Finish Cancer, where we bring you the brightest cancer experts and compassionate cancer navigators. Our goal is to make you stronger at a time you might feel at your weakest and to empower you to make the best decisions for you and your family. You'll hear about the latest in technology and treatment options, stories from patients and survivors, doctors that see you as more than a cancer diagnosis, and a whole person approach to cancer care. We want to be on your journey with you, and we want you to know that at times it can be bumpy, but we're here for you, and we want to help you forward. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Ross Gothorn, pediatric hematologist-oncologist at Providence Sacred Heart Children's Hospital. Today, we're talking about childhood cancer from the provider's perspective. Remember, everyone, most of our questions will come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our guest today. Hi, Dr. Ross. Hi, guys. How are you? We're so excited to have you. I'm going to make life easy for you today and give you a very softball question. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your role here. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so um, my name is Ross Gosshorn, and I am a pediatric oncologist here at Sacred Heart Children's Hospital. And let's see, I've been here about six years, um, and I came with my wife and two kiddos, and my daughter was, gosh, eight months when we first moved here, and now she turns seven next week. that's (laughs) exciting. Yeah, so this is home for us, and we love the Spokane area and the people here and the Children's Hospital. Well, it is a beautiful city, and it is a beautiful hospital, and the work that you guys do is amazing. And everybody we've talked to while we've been here has said the same thing, that it's just a blessing to work here. So love hearing that. Well, we are talking about children's cancer, which is always a hard topic. I think cancer in general is hard, but when you talk about kids, it's even harder. Um, Tell me a little bit about the oncology program here for the kiddos. Absolutely. So pediatric oncology at Sacred Heart Children's Hospital um, is made up of four main providers with a a physician's assistant. And so there's four oncologists. And the great thing about it is we've all come from different corners of the United States, so we have a diverse background in training. On average, we see somewhere between 60 and 80 new patients, new cancer diagnosis patients a year, and that's in addition to non-cancer um, blood disorders um, that we care for as well. So we're both oncologists and hematologists, so bleeding, blood disorders, and cancers as well. Um, we have a very robust nursing staff um, to help handle all the needs of these patients coming in every year. I'm glad you mentioned the nursing staff because one of the things that really separates you from a lot of the programs around the country is kind of this whole person family-centered care approach, which really isn't just doctors. It isn't even just doctors and nurses. There's a lot of people on your team. Can you talk a little bit about what the care team looks like? I think the phrase that comes to mind when you ask that question is it takes a village and it truly does. In order to safely and effectively deliver the therapies needed for these childhood illnesses, you need the physicians and the nurses, but you need pharmacists, you need child life specialists, you need physical therapists, occupational therapists, you need the entire group that make up a children's hospital with cardiology, pulmonology, neurology, the list goes on and on surgery, pediatric neurosurgery, and so forth. And it really does take a village. It's taking care of a child with cancer is really taking care of a family with cancer. You know, children are arguably the greatest gifts that we have. They're more important than our own lives. They're more important than our mortgages, our houses, our cars. And when something has threatened our children's existence, the mama bear and the papa bear comes out in all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think what we found, at least what I found in, in our staff here, 
is we are a dedicated group of mama bears and papa bears that are just going to destroy whatever is trying to hurt our babies. And that group is so diverse and so wonderful. And when patients come in, they meet our front desk staff and then um, get their vitals done, get their central lines accessed, and child life is there to make it less scary and, and actually as much fun as possible. And so you're exactly right. It takes this complex group of individuals dedicated to these children to make this happen. You mentioned the child life, and I think we've had a couple of other episodes where we've, we've touched on it a little bit, and I think we actually get to meet with one of the child life specialists maybe tomorrow, but talk to me a little bit about what their role is, because I think one of the one of the p- people we interviewed said it was like, they're fun, but that doesn't isn't all that they do, but they do make things easier. That's exactly right. And so um, I interact with child life because they facilitate and they make make it able to, to, for me to perform my job. So for example, this morning, I have a patient that needed a bone marrow biopsy and a spinal tap. And that happens in a specific part of the hospital called the procedure room. And it's just kind of a little bit like a mini operating room where we have all the equip, equipment that we need to do our procedure and to do it safely. But the space itself is quite cold and sterile and it's not covered, you know, with palm trees and monkeys and and happy things. I mean, we have some stuff, but I mean, when you're there, it's a very specific purpose. And when kids enter into a space, the space itself gives a vibe. And when it's kind of cold and a little more Mm -hmm. sterile, you see little kids and sometimes even their parents, their anxiety increase. And our child life specialists now walk the patients into the room, oftentimes talking about something, playing with something on the iPad together. So oftentimes the kids are oblivious to the fact that they're changing settings. And then they transition them onto the bed and get them ready for sedations and the medications that help them go to sleep for the procedures. And believe it or not, those things all add up. They're small little steps, but they make a huge difference for not only the patient, but the parents as well. And if we can lower our our worry and lower our anxiety, it just makes everything go much, much more smoothly, not only for the patient, but also for the physician and the nurses. So I feel like they're invaluable. I would be very sad if I didn't have child life specialists because it would make my job much harder and increase the traumas to our kids. It's interesting the way you phrase that because, you know, when we talk about them previously, you know, it's kind of like you think about them in the room, right, or in the the learning center, but you don't think about those rooms. And I can only imagine I just had a procedure a few months ago and I'm an adult. And as soon as I got into that room where it was very sterile, you needed a child life specialist. I needed one. I really did. To take your hand and to color on the iPad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I focused on that big bright light ahead of me, and it was just—it was yeah. So I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's someone there beside you to say, you know what? It's okay. Yeah. And I think you also touched on it too. It's the parents because it is scary when that's your child, and 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 it sounds like everybody here kind of puts the parent as part of that. They're almost the, the patient themselves, the extension of the patient. 100%. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about how you how you do have that conversation with, with a family member or a parent when there is a cancer diagnosis. And maybe you're not the person that they meet the first time, but if you are, talk to me. How, how does that happen? And how do you, how do you handle that? Because it's very sensitive. You know, it's oftentimes me. Is it? <laughs> yeah, which Aww. is okay. I want to hug you right no, now. No, no, no. It's okay. And I would take your hug. <laughs> yeah, so um, no, it's oftentimes me. Um, oftentimes kids and families will see a pediatrician or some sort of 
provider in the medical system on average six times before they make it to the oncologist for a new cancer diagnosis. And I think that's really important just for the general public to be aware. Childhood cancer is rare. And, you know, 99.99% of the time when your kid has a complaint, it's something that can be handled with your general pediatrician or your family practice doc. And so... I'll have parents kind of be frustrated the first time we meet because they say, I've been to doctors three, four times. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Normally it's six times. (laughs) But um, so either way, I've learned over the years that, um, you know, just like so many things in life, I have to take a deep breath pull up my britches, put on my big boy pants and just do what I have to do. And and oftentimes I say, you know what? You're here, you clearly know something's wrong and I'm figuring out what's wrong and it looks a heck of a lot like cancer. As soon as it's as soon as I have it confirmed, I'll let you know and I won't hold anything back. And parents' eyes will just go massive yeah. like dinner plates. But then they recognize, hey, this is what, what we're up against. This is dangerous and I want to figure out what this is and I want to get it gone. And I acknowledge that. And so so while it's not fun and I have to take a deep breath when I, before I walk in, you feel so much better after that kind of initial conversation is out of the way. Um, and then you can move forward honestly, just in truth and saying, hey, this is what we have and let's get rid of it. Yeah. Well, and then I, I would think one of the next steps is kind of what's the treatment plan? What's the treatment approach? So what's that conversation like? Haha. So there's a period of time from we have a suspicion your child has cancer and now we know what it is. And there's a couple days oftentimes where we're waiting for our lab results to come back. There's a lot of nail biting during that period of time. But once we have our diagnosis, um, we sit down oftentimes for a couple of hours. um, And again, child life then comes and facilitates as well. So I can have one on one time with the parents. So they're not having to tend to to the patient Um, uh, so we have you know a nice protected amount of time and once we sit down we just go over all of the objective data and this is the diagnosis and then here is our recipe and that's how I refer to it we're going to follow a recipe to make this go away and then we walk through oftentimes day by day to week by week to month by month what it's going to look like and 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 what's going to be needed to to make this cancer go away at what age does the patient really become kind of a player in the decision-making or in the process of that? Because I assume at three and four, that's not something they can really have an opinion on or weigh in on, but maybe by 15, even 14. You know, I would argue my seven, eight, and nine-year-olds, really? are they are weighing in. They understand something doesn't feel right in their body. They understand that something's wrong, and oftentimes at that point they've heard of the word cancer before, and they know they're in the hospital. So, I mean, it really depends on the kid, but I would say it's younger than you think it is. And I always have to remind parents, your kiddos know and are much more aware of what's going on than you think. Not surprising. I mean, when you think about what kids overhear and say or repeat back to you, I mean, oh they understand everything, right? Yeah. Yes, it's like you're in my home right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Are you, I I know that the work that you do is kind of every day you're you're practicing, but are you also kind of trying to keep up on what's happening, new research? I mean, how do you find time to do that and do all the patient care? You know, I feel like there's this mantra I heard, I think it was, yeah, it was at my medical school graduation, where the speaker just kept saying, you're going to leave here and you're going to read and you're going to read and you're going to read. And that's so true. (laughs) You just have to keep up. There's so much changing and it's wonderful because we're not doing things the way we used to and we're not quite doing things the way that we're going to do in five years. We're really in this transition time right now where we're still embracing the foundations of 
traditional chemotherapies, but we're moving forward towards harnessing the power of the immune system mm -hmm. using small, small, small molecule agents, targeting therapies, genetic analysis pathway um, evaluation with very specific medications. So as we're making this transition from these old school chemotherapies to this new era of chemotherapy, there's a lot to learn and a lot to keep up on. Um, so it's constant reading, literally constant reading, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, listening to, to, to lectures that are being given where a part of um, tumor boards kind of across the nation mm -hmm. where every week we're, we're checking in with the cell tumor docs and the brain tumor docs and the leukemia docs about what's changing and why. Kind of the perpetual student. It is the perpetual student. Yeah. That's exactly what yeah. it is. You never stop learning. And, and you don't want to stop learning because with that new information comes new therapies for your patients to improve their outcomes, increase the number of kids, and decrease the side effects and the morbidities. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I know that you talked about the number of new cases that you're getting every every year in this area, but you're also taking people from outside of the state as well. That's right. yeah. But then you talk about the tumor board, which just leads me to believe one of the reasons I love the Providence system is that it's such a large system and you have other children's hospitals, you have other oncologists. That's right. You guys are experts and your brain gets picked all the time from other hospitals. I assume you guys kind of have that reciprocal, yeah? That's right, absolutely right. So um, while we are primarily part of Sacred Heart Children's Hospital in the Providence system, we are also members of something called the Children's Oncology Group. Okay. Uh, or the COG is what we call it. And um, Children's Oncology Group is a subset of the National Cancer Institute, which is a subset of the National Institute of Health. So I, I explain this to families. The NIH oversees all health in the United States. The National Cancer Institute oversees all oncology care in the United States. And then the Children's Oncology Group oversees the delivery of, of therapies for children with with cancer. And so our hospital is a member of the COG, connecting us with all of the major hospitals across the nation, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and most of Europe. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I feel like I need your autograph, sir. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, one, you know, you just mentioned a, a minute ago, you were talking a little bit about kind of immunotherapy and chemotherapy, yep. but there's other types of treatments as well, right? Can yep. we touch on that a little bit? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So I think that the, the historical approach is important. You know, back in the, the 1910s, 1920s, if someone had a mass or a lump, the only option we had was to cut it off. And right. so that was surgery. And that's kind of the foundation of, of oncology. But we've learned that very few cancers can just be quote unquote cut off. So surgery is always there. As one of my mentors calls it, cold steel and bright lights. And it works really <laughs> great, but it's only one part of the puzzle. Um, so surgery is kind of, you know, the primary kind of beginning of oncology. And we realized that that didn't quite cut it. Mm -hmm. um, so on top of that are specialized medicines that function by killing cancer cells, and those are called chemotherapies. Um, and the th chemotherapies are really, really interesting medications, and the vast majority of, of them were derived from natural compounds, periwinkles, chrysanthemums, the yew bushes that are outside many houses in Spokane, and they have anti-cancer properties. And so on top of surgery, we, we started introducing these chemotherapies. Um, and then uh, uh, in the middle of the, the 20th century came x-rays and radiation. Mm -hmm. And between surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, that's kind of the, the three-legged stool of, of which we've always treated cancer and we're moving forward now and we're adding many more foundational pieces which is 
what I'm so excited about. <laughs> I love it. Well, I feel like we're going to we're gonna have to talk a little bit more about that, but we are going to take a quick break first, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation because I want to hear about immunotherapy. Sure. I want to hear about stem cell. There's so much more to talk about. Sure. So hang with us, guys. We'll be right back. back with our guest, Dr. Ross, and we are talking about children's cancer. And right before the break, we were talking about some of the more traditional treatments like surgery and radiation and chemo, but there's other things that you guys are working on. Let's talk about that. Absolutely. So let's see, back in 2012, um, actually 2010, 2011, there was um, a small group of researchers on the East Coast that recognized we had some very, very potent ninja cancer-fighting cells in our bodies. Ninja. Ninja. Wow, you went there. Okay. Wicked ninja. <laughs> I mean, these guys are wicked. They're called T-cells. Mm -hmm. And you've probably heard about mm -hmm. T-cells in the in the recent past with how everyone's becoming junior immunologists. <laughs> but these cells are amazing. They can seek and destroy all sorts of nasty cells in the body, including cancer cells. The problem with the T cells though, however, is in a patient that has a cancer, the T cells have missed the opportunity to kill the bad guys. Got it. And so in the last two decades, people, researchers, scientists, physicians have been trying to learn how do we grab these ninja T cells and wake them up to the fact that the enemy is in, in the body and it's time to destroy it. So there's been a couple of approaches and all of these are, are called immunotherapies. One that has been groundbreaking, and it came out of the pediatric research world, is something called CAR T-cells. CAR T-cells take the T-cells in your body, and we remove them from your body, and then we, we program them to recognize the bad guy. So for example, one of the most common leukemias is called B-cell leukemia. And on the surface of the B-cell, there's these little proteins that are unique to the cancer cell. And so what researchers have done is they've taken the T cells out of the body and they've told the T cell exactly how to find the bad leukemia cells. They grow them up in a big batch and then they make them really angry. I mean, it's like giving ninjas Red Bull wow. and sending them back in the body. <laughs> they infuse back into the body and they see their target. They seek and destroy 
and they obliterate them. Wow. And the beautiful thing about these T cells is that they persist in the body for oftentimes years. Wow. So if any any leukemia cells try and return, there's these angry red blood wow. T cells that are ready to attack them. And not only do they, they, they move through the blood, they also pass into the central nervous system as well. So the very first patient that had this successfully happen was back in 2012, and her name is Emily Whitehead. And she's now nine years in remission, and she was a young lady who was a, a little child at the time whose cancer kept coming back despite chemotherapy, despite bone marrow transplant, mm. despite every new tra trial drug. And her own T cells were the ones that, that did the trick. It was so wildly successful that we are now introducing CAR T cells in upfront therapy for our very high-risk patients. Wow. It's being used worldwide not only for pediatric cancers, but now in the adult cancer world oh. as well. And all of this came out of pediatric cancer research within the last 10 years. That's amazing. I love CAR T cells. They're amazing. <laughs> it's like very matrixy. I like it. Yeah. Well, and, and it's custom and it's harnessing the power of what we already have, yeah. as opposed to holding on to these old chemos that are 50 years old that have a really long list of side effects that none of us like. Well, and T cells are naturally in your body. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. Yep. And it's waking them up and showing them kind of you missed these bad guys right. that are sitting right. right there and then they say sorry and they destroy them <laughs> never again we will not sleep on that again that's exactly yeah. that's exactly right and it's really amazing to see what's happening and there's protocols open all over the world for every cancer type for CAR T cell now it's really incredible it's amazing technology so in keeping with the T cells there is a class of drugs um, that are known as program death ligand inhibitors or PDL1 inhibitors. And these are proteins um, that have been made in a lab that will take a T cell and force it against the surface of a cancer cell. And then it allows the T cell to see that it missed the cancer cell. And this came out of, of adult research in metastatic melanoma, which notoriously has been a very difficult disease yeah, to treat. Absolutely. And early on, they started seeing that patients were starting to survive. And these are drugs like ipilimumab, pembrolizumab, and who am I missing? Nivolumab. And these drugs started in the adult world and now have bled over to the pediatric world. And at least two patients within our clinic here, we have used these medications and seen dramatic responses. They're really, really powerful medications. And instead of pulling the T cells out of the body and then re-engineering them and putting them back in, in again, what we're doing is we're linking the T cell to the cancer cell and it allows the, the T cell to see the enemy that's right among us and destroy. And when it works, it is nothing short of a miracle. And the two patients that we've used these medications on that have had a dramatic response that's exactly what it is. It's a cancer that's out of control. You're starting to think, oh my goodness, we're not going to be able to control this disease. And the next set of scans, they're gone. And it really makes your jaw drop to the ground. It's amazing. It's, it's changing the trajectory for some patients' illnesses in such a dramatic way. And it's hard not to be excited about well, that. Well, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean... I wish people could see your face right I, now. I like, know, it's so I'm, exciting. I'm yeah. misty-eyed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's a brave new world, and um, it's very exciting time to be in pediatric oncology. We have stuff from the pediatric researchers impacting our patients. We have stuff from the adult um, researchers impacting our patients, and we're providing more options for patients that, frankly, would have passed away from their right. disease. 
Do these new, I mean, when we talk about like chemo and things, we always hear things like loss of hair, having mm -hmm. trouble keeping food. Do these other treatments, do they have side effects as well? They, they do, okay. yeah. So one of the downsides, and in, in we're, we're doing a really good job of mitigating this or decreasing it, but one of the downsides of taking these angry ninjas is that angry ninjas are swinging their arms with weapons. And oh, sometimes they hit the right. nice things in your body that makes too. Sense. And so we learned really early on that we have to cool down these ninjas a little bit, cool down these T cells so that they don't wreak havoc. Pat them but on the head. You did a good job. Calm exact, down. That's right. <laughs> Take their, their coffee away from them and tell them they need a minute to cool off. And so right. part of the last 10 years is learning what are the side effects and how do we mitigate them and how do we minimize them. Um, so certainly they do have their own list of side effects and they can be significant, but they're oftentimes completely different from our traditional chemotherapies. People think of, of hair loss and as a physician, I'm constantly thinking about the immune system being compromised seven to 10 days after the chemotherapy goes in. Looking at my young adults and even my little patients, I have to counsel the patients and their families about infertility, okay. um, which is you know very impactful. And uh, for myself, my wife and I have two kiddos and like they're the best part of of my life and i want my patients to have the option of having a family should they want it when it's the appropriate time so for our young men we will bank semen if we can before they start treatment and for our young women this is new in the last five years we can cryopreserve their eggs oh, okay. so the, the old way that we used to have to do this which was actually really tricky and a lot of people didn't want to do and i understand why is actually creating embryos oh, and then yeah. freeze embryos but you know if you're a 16 year old girl and you're like well who's going to be who's going to help make this embryo right, right. right in a lab and then freeze it it was a really difficult and, and oftentimes weird discussion yeah, yeah. and now we're able to cryopreserve eggs without them being fertilized so they just get frozen and they get pulled out for later use when it's time so wow. some of the, the less commonly talked about side effects of the traditional chemotherapies. It's really interesting you say that. I don't think that ever would have really occurred to me. Yeah. And I know like I had to make a decision a couple of years ago on a hysterectomy and in my 40s, knowing what I wanted in life, I was like, oh, it's fine. And then I was like, oh, wait, now it's not my choice anymore. That's really hard. I can't imagine trying to have that conversation with a young person. Oh, totally. And then having to do it at a time of crisis. Where they're already, yeah. Immediately following, you have cancer. Oh, my gosh, my yeah. heart. That's I so know. sad. I know, mine too. <laughs> oh. Well, with, with all of this great work that's doing and these new things coming down, talk to me a little bit about clinical trials. Is that something yep. that, that happens here? And, oh, and how absolutely. do you make those decisions? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier about the children's oncology group. So I think um, if there's enough time, uh, some historical perspective is really important. And um, the first time I understood how much progress we made, I just kind of sat there again with my jaw on the ground. So in the 1950s, childhood cancer was always lethal. Like in 1955, the beginning groundwork was beginning at the um, NIH in Bethesda, uh, Maryland, where a group of doctors said, all right, we're gonna try and do something about this childhood leukemia, which they call the childhood wasting syndrome. So essentially oh, wow. kids would just look horrible, yeah. they'd start bleeding and they would die. And there was a group of doctors that were brave and they, they asked people to send all these children with this wasting syndrome to them. And the first step was so simple. It was just stopping the bleeding. And that's, that was where we learned what platelets were. And that's how we learned you 
you could transfuse platelets and stop the bleeding. And so that happened in the 50s. And here we are now in 2020 talking about harnessing the ninja T cells to make things go away. So, so much work has been done in the last, what is that, 70 years. Um, uh, to, to, to really leapfrog us ahead in our journey. But I feel like I've lost the point of your question. No, no you're still getting there. I was asking you about clinical trials, and yes. you were kind of talking about okay. the historical way of getting there. That's yeah. exactly right. So early on, we recognized we've got to figure out a way to work together because no one institution has enough patients to figure it out. Right. So Thank God. That's exactly yeah. right. And so we figured out that this drug called mercaptopurine and vincristine and prednisone, and we could give these in combination and we would make the disease go away temporarily. And then we added a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then in the 1960s, St. Jude came into existence and those doctors there started putting together these what we call protocols. Fast forward to today where we have the children oncology group and we have a protocol for every major childhood illness that is essentially systematically going through and saying this worked in the past but we need to do better because we have kids that are dying of this specific disease so Providence Sacred Heart Children's Hospital Pediatric Oncology through the Children's Oncology Group is making available the most cutting-edge treatment options for every major childhood cancer and that is delivered through clinical trials. Yeah. So if a new patient with leukemia arrives in our emergency department this afternoon, tomorrow I'll present to them the most recent up-to-date clinical trial available for their childhood, their okay. child, child's cancer. Whether or not they choose to be a part of that is up to the family and the patient, mm -hmm. but we have it ready to rock and roll for them. That's amazing, With though. the newest technology yeah. and the best medications. That's amazing. Yeah, so childhood clinical trials is the way that we have gone from 1% survival to 96% survival for pediatric leukemia. Amazing. Well, talking about the parents and, and giving them this information, right? I assume that a lot of what you do is education in general, right? Yeah. Like you yeah. got a cancer diagnosis. Where do I go for information? Is it Dr. Google? No, <laughs> like, <laughs> it is not Dr. Google. <laughs> you heard it here, guys. Do not go to Google. Do not, do, do right. not look at the symptoms. Yeah, so for pediatrics, I think it's the Children's Oncology Group website. And then actually my favorite, and I am just a huge nerd, is cancer.gov. And cancer.gov is the, the general public's interface for everything cancer-related. And within cancer.gov, there's these, these items called PDQs, and they're treatment summaries. And they will give you a patient version and a doctor version, and it's just available for anyone that goes there. And so, for example, if you're looking at childhood leukemia, you type in childhood leukemia, and it'll give you a PDQ, which is this 30-page summary about everything about childhood wow. leukemia. And then at the top, it says doctor version. You click on that, it gives you all the statistics, it gives you all the drugs, wow. the doses that are supposed to be given and on what days. I mean, it is literally just like the oncology Bible and it's available to everyone and it has all of the numbers that everyone wants including five-year event-free survival, relapse rates, yeah. what are the options if the, if, the, if the cancer comes back, et cetera. It's a wonderful, robust resource that very few people know about. So cancer.gov. That's amazing. I'm not getting reimbursed for that. I know, right? <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> just for your fun, just for fun. That's right. I, I hate to ask this question, but I need to. What, ha what happens when nothing's working? Yep. When you've gone through all of these, these options? Yeah, yep. Um, so... Um, I'm very sad when that happens. Um, you know, every day we wake up as a team to take care of these kids and you become 
in some ways just a member of their tribe, yeah, you know, absolutely. and they become a member of yours. And when it's clear that something's not working, um, I try to always have kind of a big open conversation about what's going on. And so when things are not going well, the families know. And depending on the age of the child, the patient knows. And if it's clear that we're, we're not going to be able to cure the patient, then we have that conversation. And I will say it is clear we're not going to be able to cure your son or daughter. And even just saying it in this room now, I get choked up. Of course, that's hard. <laughs> because it's the opposite of what I want. And, um, and so between us and our amazing palliative care team and inter interfacing with the hospice groups in the area, we put together a plan to identify symptoms, minimize symptoms, and maximize quality of life. And we have an open conversation about all of those things. Um, and as long as you have an open conversation, you have the right players involved, you can have a beautiful next chapter of this person's existence. And there is a lot of beauty and there's a lot of love that can that can come with going through that chapter together hand in hand it is emotional sure there are tears and there are losses and i miss dearly miss so many patients yeah. um but it's a privilege too yeah. you know not everything works out the way we want to and it's not just in oncology it's in life in general and i think going through it together makes it much better. Well, I have to ask you then, why? Why did you pick pediatric oncology? Oh my gosh, I ask myself that all the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, so, um, you know, I didn't pick it, it picked me. Okay. Um, when you are doing your basic training for medicine, um, uh, pediatrics picked me. When I got onto my pediatrics rotation, I was like, these are my people, this is yeah. what I'm supposed to be doing. And then once you choose to do pediatrics, you have to do every flavor of pediatrics. Mm -hmm. I hit oncology and I said, these are my people, this is nice. what I'm supposed to be doing. And it just was this very organic, natural process and it chose me and people told me I was good at it and I enjoyed it and I loved it and it was the it was the topic that I would stay up late for and read and wake up early for so I could make sure I had everything really dialed in for my patients and I couldn't imagine doing anything else I I want to talk to you for like another hour. I mean, this is amazing. I'm I'm so grateful for the amazing work that you do and, and for everything. And, and so thank you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Um, and thank you everyone for listening to Let's Finish Cancer. We look forward to continuing the conversation on the whole person approach to cancer care with more of our experts from Providence. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under the Future of Health radio station or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health System. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, visit providence.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, Providence is here for you, and we see the life in you.